Uh, we are diving into week two of our Advent series called Echoes of a Voice. And the idea with this, as we looked at even last week, is with Advent, it is far more than simply the countdown to Christmas. I mean, we're excited about Christmas. Some of you have been counting down, you know, since Halloween ended, all right? And uh, it's just like, all right, we're all in. And that's beautiful and that's wonderful. I'm all in on that as well. But it is far more than just that countdown. Like historically, it's always been a looking back. We celebrate the reality of Jesus' first arrival, his first coming. That's what Advent means. But also there's this anticipation, there's this looking ahead where there's going to be this moment where Jesus splits the sky and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And we experience his rule and reign and that he is the prince of peace. And we get to enjoy that reality forever. And right now we live in this time where we celebrate what Christ has done and we long for and we have confidence in what he's going to do, but there's this in-between. And so N.T. Wright, who's the theologian, wrote a book a number of years ago called Simply Christian. And this series title of Echoes of a Voice is taken from his book. In the first section, it's simply entitled that. It's Echoes of a Voice. And he looks at things. Thank you, Siri. Um, No, uh, you can't get that. Sorry. Um, Golly, what in the world? Um, Siri doesn't even understand my sermons. What's going on? Okay, so here we go. So uh, the idea, though, is he speaks of that there's this longing, these desires for justice, for relationships, for spirituality, and for beauty. And the idea is, and this echoes of a voice, or maybe you can think of these as signposts, is that we are people that have these deep longings, and particularly Advent is a time to pay attention to those things. To ask ourselves, what do these longings and these desires or these hungers that we have, what do they point us to? Because they're not meant to terminate on themselves, right? Like I've used this illustration before, but I think it's appropriate again of like you decide to take your family and friends, you're going to go to Universal Studios or Disney or whatever your theme park of choice is, right? And you, you go there and you see the first sign, all right, exit here, and you get out and you just hang out by the sign. It's like, what, what are you doing? Like, no, that's a pointer. Like it's pushing you toward, it's directing you toward the reality to experience, your friends, family, kids, they'd all be sorely disappointed if, and also dangerous that you're on the side of you know, I-4, like, hey, we're here, right? Like, it just, it's not good. And so there's these echoes, there's these longings, and they're not meant just to be in and of themselves the thing that we focus on, but they're meant to point us to a deeper reality. And so we looked at justice last week, and Pastor Eric did a great job introducing that. And this morning, we're going to look at hunger for relationships. And so we are people that have these longings and these desires, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, The Gospel in Genesis, this fascinating little book that he put together, talks about this restlessness or this longing. And so here are these words that he wrote as we think about and we contemplate hunger, desire, longings. He says, what is the meaning of this restlessness that is in human nature? What is the meaning of this constant search for something that we do not have and that we do not seem able to find? Upon what is it all based? There's only one adequate answer. We have an innate feeling that we were meant for something bigger and higher. There is in every one of us a recollection, a memory of what we once were. He says, we were all in Adam, and man was made perfect in the image of God. He was upright. He was righteous. There was a glory about his very body. And though we have lost this, and though we have never known it, a memory lingers. It is in the whole of human nature, it is in all of humanity, a sense of something else. This memory that lingers, 
or this hunger, this longing, this desire. And so the question for us this morning, are we paying attention? Are you paying attention to your hunger? And not just in a physical sense of you didn't eat enough for breakfast and you're already anticipating lunch, though that might be true, but what is this deep part of like your heart that it hungers for? Because here's the thing. We are creatures that have a mind that God has given to us. But the calling for the church is not to be like this, right? Sort of the bobbleheads for Jesus of sorts, right? To have this kind of brains on a stick, like this massive mind, right? I mean, it's important to learn, but we are also creatures of desire. Our body, our soul, are we paying attention to those things? Do we desire the right things? And as we desire things like relationship, what is that meant to ultimately point us to? And so we are gonna look at the opening uh, section of scripture. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. So I want to invite you, if you brought a Bible, turn to Genesis 1. We'll look at 20, verses 26 to 27 to start out, and then we'll look at a couple other texts. If you didn't bring a Bible, one of the best ways to follow along too is to go to cplife.church on your phone. You can get that out, and as you scroll down, you'll see something that says sermon notes. All right, there, you click that. The text is there. Things that I'm putting up on the slides will be there. Uh, as well. And so as we get into this this morning, I want to look at what God's, what his design is for us. And we'll spend a little bit of time in that. And then we will look at there's a deception that has occurred. And how has that created the world that we live in? And why even are some of these hungering, these longings, why are those things so present? Why do we feel them so deeply? How are they misguided at times? And we can look at what Advent teaches us about the ultimate deliverance that is provided in Christ. But first, let's look at the design. We wanna go back to the beginning. Let's explore in the opening chapters of our scriptures what it says about how you and I were created. And so I'll read this, Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so what's so fascinating in this account, God has just been laying out for us, all right, the creation in days one through five and what he's been doing. And then when it comes to day six, it's the pinnacle of his creation. It's the space where later on he will look at and say, it's very good, like creation has been good, but up until this point, that's the label for it, and now it's very good as he looks at humankind that he has created. So when it says man, it's talking about mankind. He created the male and female. And in verse 27, so that we don't miss the point, Moses, who's the author of Genesis, says he created, he created, he created. This isn't an accident that God is the one. He's, act, he's actively involved, the active agent. He is the one who's bringing this about, all right? And in that, we need to pay attention at a couple different things. Because one, it's going to communicate to us where this hunger comes from, the, some of the deepest longings, what it means to actually be fully human. You and I cannot know what we are called to be as human beings, all right, without understanding what's taking place here in Genesis chapter one and chapter two. The world actually makes, this is my contention, it makes zero sense without an understanding. That doesn't mean we understand all the particular things, but just the big themes here. Because what's taking place in this, maybe a way to think about it, is there is a divine conversation that's taking place. Like we're getting the eavesdrop in on how God is speaking. Because did you notice the language there? It says, God said, and he did not say, let me make man in my image. 
No, look at the language. Let us make man in our image according to what? According to our likeness. And so what we learn in the opening pages, like we're not even through chapter one yet, and as God creates, it's not just God as this, this one being. There's these three persons. And we realize, oh, that part of how we're designed, if we're made in his image, we're made in his likeness, it would help us then to stop and say, okay, well, what is God like? What might it mean? What characteristics might we have if we're made in his image? And we see this plurality. And you have God the Father, and you have God the Son, and you have God the Spirit. That God has always existed in community. This is what the church down through the ages is referred to as the Trinity. There's this Trinitarian community, and there's a conversation that's happening. And just so you know, the conversation wasn't God talking to himself and being like, I'm really lonely, I don't have any friends, these animals are great, but they're not cutting it, I know, I'll make man and woman. Like, that's not how it plays out. He's got perfect community. He doesn't need you, he doesn't need me, all right? But part of who he is, just the overflow of his being, right? He creates us. And because we're made in his image, if he exists in community, then what does it mean to be fully human? It would mean that we also are created for community. You're created for relationship. It's why so much of the last 18 to 20 months or so has been so disruptive. We had a massive isolation loneliness problem pre-pandemic, and it's only ramped up. Deaths of despair, suicide, things like opioid addiction, like all that stuff is on the rise because there's this isolation. And God would look at that and say, you're living against the grain of like the universe, like how he's created things to be. God exists in community. And so we start there. And then when we ask, okay, who are we? How are we invited to live? What are we called? Why do we have this hunger? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. That need for acceptance, for belonging. Now, there's reasons why we have the insecurities, and we'll look at that as we just turn the page literally into Genesis chapter 3 in a moment. But there is this initial, just this beautiful picture. And as God creates humanity, we now have this perfect vertical relationship with our creator, horizontally, one to another. Adam and Eve have a perfect marriage. If there'd been no sin, they would have had perfect kids who would have honored their parents perfectly, just like all of your children do, right? Like all that, right? Like this is how it would have played out had things continued, and there would have been a perfect, harmonious, orderly interaction and relationship with the creation. I mean, that's what's taking place here. Adam and Eve are not all defensive about the animals. They're not like, oh no, well, okay, you stay awake at night in case the lion eats us. Like they're not concerned about any of that. Like this perfect relationship across all facets of life. And what this leads to, as we continue, he says, let us make man in our image. And then do you notice the language? He says, they, that is you and me. You want to know what your calling is? You want to know what it looks like to be fully human? Is to be a relational ruler. Like that's what this is talking about. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. That part of what it means to be fully human, to be fully alive, is that we would be in relationship and that we would take seriously our call to be rulers. Now, not ultimate. That's what gets Adam and Eve in trouble in Genesis 3, and we'll look at that more in a moment. But this sense of they are vice regents, meaning they have a calling on their life to take what is the prototype, the garden, where there's this 
perfect, perfect relationship across all areas and expand that. So God has taken the chaos of the world and he's ordered it and fashioned it and made this home for Adam and Eve. And then he's telling them, hey, go do this. And you're not an inanimate image. You're not an inanimate icon. And that time and place in the world, in the ancient Near East, in that time, kings would set up ways that, to tell people, all right, you're under my rule and reign because the king couldn't be everywhere at once. He would literally have his subjects go and make icons, make statues, and put them. And that way, after they conquered people, the people could look out from their home and down in the town square or wherever it was, and they would see this icon, this image of the king, and they would know, oh, we live under his rule and reign. And we, though, are called. God takes this idea and says, oh, I've got something so much better. You are living, breathing icons, image bearers. You're meant to be relational creatures that are ruling. You're meant to showcase what it looks like when the kingdom of God shows up and how you do relationships and vocation and what it means to be a, a good neighbor and how to be in you know, friendships and how to think about entertainment and recreation and all the things. We're meant to put that on display. This is why the psalmist would write this in Psalm 8. What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and you crowned him with glory and honor. This is a description of God fashioning you and me. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. So that has been our call from the beginning to be these relational rulers, to put on display what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of the one true God, this God who exists in community. And you know the story, I'm guessing. Even if you don't know the Bible very well, here's the story you do know. That's not the world we inhabit right now. You may not have an explanation for it, but we all feel it, we sense it, we know it. We just literally have to open up our phone, go to any app, turn on the news, or just talk to a human being, or spend five minutes honestly evaluating your own heart, and we will all realize very quickly the world is fractured and it's broken, and all the beauty that once existed has begun to spiral. And it's because, though God declared how things were, there is deception that enters in. And so if we were to go and just turn the page literally into Genesis chapter 3, let me read, about, read for you this deception that occurs. And so in verses 4 to 7, we'll look at this. The whole section is about the temptation of what has historically been called the fall. And you have the serpent that shows up. And what the serpent is doing, this fallen creature, is trying to get Adam and Eve, the original parents, to believe a lie. And the lie goes something like this. You are meant to be God. God is holding out on you. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. You should choose self rather than surrender to God. How dare he call for your allegiance? That's weird. That's bizarre. You don't want to live that way. You need to choose self. Be an individual. You do you. If you're like, hey, where'd that phrase come from? It's basically Genesis 3 playing out. And so the serpent shows up, and the man and the woman are like, no, you know, we're, we're told we can't eat that, we can't touch it, we'll, we'll die, and here's his re response. He's like, no, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows Then when you eat it, your eyes will actually be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The lie, your eyes will be opened. 
How many of you maybe have combated that even? Maybe it was part of your Thanksgiving conversation. I don't know. But just in general, even your friends and family, people you care deeply about. But they don't believe what you believe. And they think your view is outdated and archaic, and they're the enlightened ones. And their eyes have been opened. And one day maybe you'll see and can kind of get over your naive sort of ways. And God in his kindness is saying, no, no, no. Their eyes were not opened. Their eyes actually became shut to God's reality. God has called them to be these relational rulers, but in glad submission to him, to not reach for the fruit and say, I want to do what I want to do. I, don't want to, I want to glorify the self rather than God. But yet they believe the lie. And so Genesis 3 continues, verses 6 to 7. says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And now look at the result. You want to talk about eyes open? Here's what happens. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Prior to this moment, there's this complete vulnerability in the garden. Adam and Eve, naked, unashamed, perfect communion with their creator, perfect communion with the creation, and perfect communion between the two of them as husband and wife. This ultimate vulnerability, but it, felt, it was so safe. They were so secure because they were living under the rule and reign of God. I mean, that's the safe place to be. And we long, there's something in our hearts that we long and hunger for relationships. We long to be known, but we wonder, can we trust this person? Because maybe you've given your heart. Maybe you've, you've trusted somebody and they have betrayed you. And you live long enough, you know that that's going to happen in some way, shape, or form. And how do we respond to that? And there's all this shame in the story of humanity since this moment has been fig leaf after fig leaf after fig leaf. Meaning you and I may not be people that go and sew our clothes together with fig leaves to try and cover up our shame, but we do it nonetheless. I'll achieve in my career so that I'll know that I'm somebody. I'll have this home or be able to buy this thing or go on this trip or have these people like me. Have my kids turn out a certain way. Be able to get into this particular school or be able to have this particular career. And on and on and on it goes. And they're all good things in and of themselves, good gifts from the Lord. But they're fig leaves so often that we use to cover up our shame, our vulnerability. We wonder if anybody could actually love us. We feel so disjointed and discombobulated when it comes to relationship. We, don't, we lose sight of who we really are because we're not living as God intends us to live. Maybe a way to think about this is, have you and I bought into the wrong emancipation story, the wrong story of freedom? The story that Adam and Eve were buying into was we need to throw off all restraint, all shackles, to have these rules by God. No, that's not the way to live. Like We need to be completely free, completely autonomous. My friends, that is not true freedom. And I think anyone who would spend just a bit of time, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, would know that things that cause human flourishing, things that cause us to actually experience true freedom is not the complete lack of restraint. 
right? Silly illustration, but I'll use it nonetheless, right? Like if you go down to a lake and you catch a fish, not because you're gonna eat it, but because you're like, you're so dialed into the fish, you're like, you take the fish, you throw them on the land, you're like, I freed you, little buddy, you're so free now. The fish, if the fish could think and communicate, so go with my story in this moment, right, would be saying, put me back in the water, you moron, right? Like, this is not freedom. The fish needs the restraint, and it's meant to actually give life. And so the way we view things is like, it's so twisted. We think to live under God's rule and reign somehow is going to rob us of life and of joy. We brought into an emancipation story that says we need to be liberated from all sort of restraint. It's just not true. Unless your goal in life is like anarchy, right? Like that's just, that's not human flourishing. And God says, no, no. Your liberation story is part of living under my rule and reign. And so when Adam and Eve, when they reach for the fruit, they're saying, no, I choose self rather than surrender. And you think about like a pebble being thrown into water and like the ripple effect here. I mean, we could talk, we could add to this list, but it disrupts things spiritually, starts to unravel back towards chaos. We'll look at this theme more next week. Things begin to unravel physically, not only for Adam and Eve, their physical bodies, but also all of the created order that Psychologically, things begin to unravel. There's no mental health issues prior to Genesis 3. But now, this begins to be part of what the, the brokenness of the fall. And then relationally, which we're looking at more specifically this morning. And again, relationally with our maker, relationally with one another, and out toward the creation. So as I think about this, the fact that it's not just Adam and Eve that have bought into this lie, into this deception... Sadly, that is the story I continue to buy into. And I believe if you're honest, you would say, you buy into that. There's this sense of like, I've got to prove the self. I've got to carve out my own identity rather than just surrendering to what God offers us. And so what ends up happening is we end up in a world, because I think this is fair to say, all right? We've talked about it, and Pastor Eric was praying even through some of this earlier. We are people that we don't, long-term live completely isolated. I mean, I know there's some cases of that, right, for various circumstances, but by and large, we eventually start to try and find sort of our people. But there is a counterfeit that exists. And because of the brokenness and because of the lie and because of us choosing the individual, like there's this hyper-individualism that is just rampant in our culture and our society, and I wish I could say, man, it's way out there, but as long as we're here in the church. No, no, it's present here as well. And it robs us of relationship. It robs us of being fully human. It robs us from what God would have for us, that there's this counterfeit, because here's what ends up taking place, is that we can't forever be isolated, and so the world begins to unravel to a point of now simply this tribalism and these factions and this partisanship that exists. And if you don't think that describes our world, I don't think you've been paying attention. David Brooks in his book, The Second Mountain, which I think is a fascinating account, I read this, I don't know, sometime over the last year and was revisiting some of it this last week. He talks about this, this pursuit of the individual, this pursuit of the self, this hyper-individualism. So we might give lip service to community as long as it doesn't actually cost me. But there can be no community with that. But we do end up, and he begins to connect some dots that I hadn't thought through before. Let me read you this quote of how hyper-individualism, which seems like it's on one end, and then the sort of this tribalism on the other, how they're actually feed into one another. And this explains so much, I think, of our world. He says this, Hyper-individualism leads to tribalism, 
People eventually rebel against the isolation and meaninglessness of hyper-individualism by joining a partisan tribe. This explains why people are doing what they're doing right now. This seems like relation, but is actually its opposite. If the relationalist mentality is based on mutual affection, the tribalist mentality is based in mutual distrust. It is always us versus them, friend or enemy, destroy or be destroyed, and anger is the mode. He continues, the tribalist is seeking connection, but isolates himself ever more bitterly within his own resentments and distrust. Tribalism is the dark twin of community. The tragic paradox of hyper-individualism is that what began as an ecstatic liberation ends up as a war or tribe against tribe that crushes the individuals it sought to free. He's talking about this sense here we bought into the wrong freedom story, the wrong emancipation story. But because we can't live alone, we eventually, if we don't have this hunger rightly oriented, these desires rightly oriented, we end up in these factions. And friends, I think this is what is playing out. And again, I wish I could say it's just out there, but it's present here. And I think we have to examine our hearts and say, what would it look like? Because the church should be the place that is welcoming people in from across various tribes. I mean, that's the picture at the end, right? Every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne of Jesus worshiping. Like, we need to start practicing this now. These divisions that occur, you can have your different political preferences and things like that. That's not the problem. It's when it results, though, in this hate and this animosity and this war that is taking place. And our calling as the church is to say, hey, there's a good and right desire to be connected, to have a sense of belonging. But let me invite you to belong to the cause that actually brings life, not death, that brings joy and not hate. Let me invite you into that life because that's what Jesus is inviting us into. And what would it look like then to be a group of people that are these relational rulers putting this on display? Well, it's going to cost us something. We know there's going to be strife. We know there's going to be brokenness in relationship. If the call was, okay, well, we're all going to leave here and everything will be fine from here on out, we just, like, that's going to last. Good luck even just getting home, right? Like, it's the, the reality is there's going to be some strife. And so help us with this. Let's talk for a moment about the butlers, the Fitzgeralds, and a door. All right, we'll talk about this for a moment. This is something I learned uh, recently. This may be something that's familiar uh, to you, but in Ireland, all right, in the late 1400s, the year was 1492, all right, um, there are these two particular families, the Fitzgeralds and the Butlers, were two of the most prominent successful families in Dublin. Um, I am not Irish, but I've heard the Irish sometimes can fight, all right? I think that's uh, fair to say, all right? Um, and so a little bit of a fight, not just a little bit, broke out between these two families. And here's what it was centered around. Each family thought that someone from their extended family, their clan, should hold a pol particular political post. And war literally broke out. Imagine people fighting about politics. Can't believe it, right? And so... This war, and by war, I mean literally, it's not just that they're not you know, inviting each other over for birthday parties now, it's that they've actually taken up arms against one another, and there is blood being shed between these two families that had existed harmoniously, had existed in a good way, they were seeking the flourishing of their city and their community, and now there is bloodshed that is happening. So they've taken up arms. And as this battle is raging on, it becomes clear pretty early on that the Fitzgeralds are going to 
outmaneuver, all right? They have more strength than the butlers. And the leader of the Fitzgeralds, his name is Gerald Fitzgerald, which I guess his parents weren't very creative. I don't know, we'll go with Gerald. Gerald Fitzgerald, all right? So double up on the name. And James Butler was the one who was in charge of the Butler family, okay? The butlers realize it's, this is not looking good for us, and so they begin to retreat. And the place that they go to is uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral there in town. It's a beautiful structure. And they believe that there's this policy that they can have sanctuary if they literally go into the, the sanctuary, right? And so they go into this cathedral. They find a room. They barricade the door. They lock themselves in. And the Fitzgerald clan shows up. And they begin pounding on the door. And it says, for hours... They were they're yelling back and forth, let us in. All of these things were taking place. And eventually, Gerald comes to this point where he's like, what am I doing? What, what are we doing? Why, why is this happening? Why have we made this such a big deal? Have you ever had those moments in a fight? We're like, hey, what were we fighting about? How did this start, right? He's having one of those moments. And he's like, he, he just, his entire countenance changes. And now instead of yelling through the door about how, what they're going to do to the butlers, he says, please open the door. Peace. I'm just calling for peace. Let's just come out. We can figure this out. Please. Like, we care about you. Let's, let's get this worked out. If you're the butlers, though, what are you thinking? Hmm, not falling for that, right? Like, no way I'm going to open the door. And so in an act to show that he was serious, he asked what was now one of the soldiers with him. Gerald asked somebody to take an ax. And the man took an ax to the door to the point that there was a small section that was broken through. And then Gerald Fitzgerald, to the Butler family, particularly to James Butler, got, had an opening there just, as big, just big enough to fit his hand, thrust not only his hand but his entire arm through as an act of vulnerability, an act of reconciliation to say, Please shake my hand. And in that moment, he risked. His arm could have been cut off. But instead, James Butler reached out and extended his hand. And the doors were opened and the families reconciled. And there today, if you go, you can see this particular door with it cut out. I have not been there, but thank you, Google Images. All right. Um, but there is a phrase, perhaps you've heard of this, that's referred to as chancing the arm. The origins go back to the late 1400s of he took a chance. If relationships were going to be restored, he had to move toward these ones that had become his enemies. And in this Advent season, if there's ever a picture of what our Lord Jesus has done for us, it's that he did far more than chance his arm, that he literally emptied all of who he was. That he came and he left the heavenly realm, as Philippians 2 speaks of, and that he emptied himself. We think about the calling for us as a church, like how can we be engaged in this work of reconciliation? How can we see relationships flourish? Maybe to, how can we chance the arm? The only way we can do that is if we understand what Christ has done for us. That Jesus on the cross did far more than simply become vulnerable with his arm, but rather his arms were spread out on that cross. And in the one who had experienced perfect harmony and communion and relationship, God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son, all for all of eternity past, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just his arm that he risks. He gives all of who he is. That's what happened when Jesus came here in the first advent, born 
the Virgin Mary, born in Bethlehem, most humble like circumstances, grows up, lives a sinless life so that he could do far more for you and me and our hunger for relationships than simply chance the arm that he would give all of who he is. And the more you and I understand that, the more we will have the resources, the more we will be empowered to be a church that hungers for relationship and make sure we understand that the gospel is central to relationships flourishing. You and I cannot do this on our own. We need to keep coming back to the fact that God has reconciled us to him. And because of that, that can spread out now horizontally. And so as we close, there's this, this deliverance. I mean, in Genesis chapter 3, if we look at verses 8 to 9 for a moment, it says these words, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? You go on a walk with friends. There's this relationship that's being spoken of here. It's a hint at the relationship that existed between Adam and Eve and their maker. This walk in the garden. And what is the posture of our God all the way back in Genesis 3? Sure, there's going to be consequences. There's repercussions. Sure, there are some things, uh, true brokenness that's happened. But the disposition of our God is he moves toward us. Advent is a reminder that God has moved toward us, and he will move toward us ultimately when he comes back. That God, all the way back in Genesis 3, calls out, where are you? It's not because he didn't know where they were. He's God. He's not like, oh, find my phone on there. Right? No, he's not doing that. He knows where they are. It's more that he's asking Adam, do you know where you are? Do you know what you've walked away from? Do you know the spot that you're in? Do you know your need to be reconciled and experience restoration? And he moves toward them. And then, long before Jesus would ever show up, the gospel in its sort of prototype form is spoken of. Just a few verses later, that God is pronouncing curses not only on Adam and Eve and the creation, but he speaks to the serpent. And he says this, I will put hostility, this is verse 15, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. But know this, this little baby Jesus that's going to come, he will grow up and he will strike your head. And yes, you will strike his heel. There will be pain, there will be sorrow. It's going to be excruciating. But know this, he is coming for you. He's going to do away with death. He's going to bring about reconciliation. He's going to allow us to now pay attention to this hunger that we have for relationship and as excited as we might be to have friends and all that, that it would point us to the deeper relationship that we have with God, that we get to be reconciled with God. And because of what he has done, we now have the resources to reconcile with one another. That friends, the reality of this, and we'll close with this, in Romans chapter five, Paul would say this, Unless we thought for a moment, like, oh, we're easy people to love. He's like, no, 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 remember your identity. For if while you were enemies, we were reconciled. That was our state. And Jesus came and reconciled us as his enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved? Like, there's this ultimate salvation that awaits us. But it's not just someday in the future. He says this, but more than that. 
we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now, right here in this moment, received reconciliation. And the more you press into the reconciliation, the relationship that you have with God himself, the more we can press into reconciliation with one another, the more we can be relational rulers inviting the world to say, let us show you what grace and mercy and forgiveness, because we have been forgiven, we can extend it to other people. We're okay to take the shots. We're okay to be misunderstood because at the end of the day, our identity is rock solid in Jesus Christ. This is what we're invited to as the church. And Advent is this reminder, God has come for us even while we were his enemies, and he died for us to make us friends. John 15, 13 speaks of a friend shows love. How? By laying down his life. That is what Jesus has done, and now he calls us friends. And so church, let me pray for us as we pay attention to this hunger for relationships. Let it drive us to our need, the relationship we have with our maker. And as you think through this and pray through this, I encourage you, what do you need to repent of? What are some of the fig leaves? What are some of the pursuits of self? And let's remember what Christ has done for us and let's rejoice in that and let's resolve to be a community committed to relationships. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness and your grace and your mercy, your pursuit of us. Thank you that you have turned enemies into friends. And this hunger that we have for relationships, God, I pray that we would be growing in that, God, that there would be, as we were even talking about in this Grow Together initiative, that there'd be this vulnerability that's gonna take pressing more fully into the gospel. So we give you praise for that resource. We thank you that it literally transforms everything. And so God, I pray that we would be a church that grows in our relationships with one another out into the community, that we would see more people reconciled to you and then to one another. So God, be building your church, be growing us together for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.